Jam Session is a podcast where two guys who grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth discuss sports, craft beer, life, and their experiences living in one of America's most vibrant cities. If you love sports, you're going to love this show. If you love craft beer or you're curious about it, you'll love this show. Great conversations with good friends is what Jam Session is all about. Welcome. It's nice to have you here. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. You're listening to the Jam Session Podcast. I was told that I could listen to the radio at a reasonable volume. With Cowboys insider... What's your name? Jean-Jacques Taylor. That's my name. Radio personality and craft beer expert, Matt McLaren. He's a very strange young man. He's an idiot. Comes from upbringing. And now, the Jam Session Podcast... It is indeed Jam Session. Subscribe, rate, review, hang out with us for a while right here on the Jam Session Podcast, sponsored as always by Greening Law, a personal injury law firm in Dallas, Texas. Greening Law fights the legal battle so you have time for healing and renewal. But right now, the moment we've all been waiting for has arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, the radio, the TV, the podcast star, the sexy Jean-Jacques Taylor. What up, Doc? I would be the non-sexy one, Matt McLaren. And this is Jam Session, the podcast version 293, asking simply that you prepare to be dazzled. If not entertained. We're going to do that for you today. Got some Cowboys thoughts, but we also have a couple of Cowboys guests. ESPN Cowboys reporter Todd Archer is going to join us. Dallas Morning News Cowboys reporter Calvin Watkins is going to join us, get some of his thoughts on the Cowboys, as well as a book that he has that I read and that's very, very good on the Cowboys and their draft history. But before we roll into anything, Greening Law. I've been telling you guys about Greening Law, how I've been working with them. I was involved in a car accident and my back, it's just who knows what's going on. We've gotten to a point, and this is how Greening Law works. I got a call this morning from a orthopedic surgeon who I'm going to go see for a long-term prognosis to see if, if is surgery something that might be necessary. They called me because Greening Law has set everything up for me. They're like, yes, we got a call that we need to schedule you for an appointment. I was like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and they do all that. They're like, yes, well, we're going to get your MRIs and everything from your attorney. I understand that they have that. And I was like, yeah, that's Okay. They just simplify everything. All that crap that you have to deal with, with insurance companies and all these appointments and everything, when they bring you on as a client, it's literally as easy as picking up the phone and doing what you're supposed to do. And that's why we tell you, any opportunity, if something happens and you're involved in an accident, it doesn't matter whether it's it's an 18-wheeler or it's an apartment complex or it's a business or construction. It doesn't really matter, man. The best thing that you could possibly do is pick up the phone, call 972-934-8900 and say, hey, Greeny, Green Team, here's my deal. Here's my situation. Here's the details. What do you guys think? If they bring you on as a client, bro, who doesn't want somebody to help walk you through this? this process it can be long it can be tedious it can be a little uh complicated they got a flashlight man the kind of police carry around they put a light on everything they help you and that's why you should pick up the phone and give them a call it's easy to do that consultation is absolutely free if you think you've got a case you are hurt on the premises of a business malpractice with the physician so many different reasons give them a call 972-934-8900 972-934-8900 it's robert greening call him now offices dallas texas so the cowboys this this thought struck me after the game and, and again Jacques and i are recording this on tuesday when we just hours ago recorded our, our immediate post-game thoughts 
You look at this and you look at what the Cowboys are sitting at at two and one. And something that we didn't bring up yesterday after the game that I started thinking about today. It's interesting. We are seeing exactly why we had argued all offseason that they shouldn't sign Dalton Schultz to a long term deal. Have they <laughs> seriously have they missed him? Well, he only missed one game, but here's the deal, man. And this is the way I describe it. And I was talking to somebody uh, who spent a long time in the NFL the other day, not about Dalton Schultz, but his name popped up as we were having a deeper conversation. But it's in today's NFL, you get paid when you bust somebody ass. That means you're a big play guy. Whether it's a defensive big play guy, you create sacks or, or interceptions or turnovers or whatever. Or you're a big play guy on offense. You score touchdowns, you create big plays, whatever. If you do that, you get paid. And Dalton Schultz, is a, I think he's, a, he's actually emerged, evolved into a really solid player. Like, he's a good player. But he ain't busting nobody ass, man. And so he's not going to get paid. Will he get a nice contract next year? Yeah, he'll get a nice contract. Is he going to get something that's uh, Darren Waller, George Kittle's that level of pay? No, because he's not busting nobody's ass, and they are. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you look at this, and, and he gets banged up in the Cincinnati game. I think he had two for 18 in that game. But last night, uh, watching the game against the Giants, I was like, man, I, I completely forgot Dalton Schultz is not even playing. You know, pay, And granted, look, Hendershot had a couple of penalties and whatnot, but Jake Ferguson looks like he's going to be the real deal. And looks like the reason why you drafted that dude in the fourth round so is that you can develop him into being the next Dalton Schultz and you just replace him as a much cheaper and affordable option than what Dalton Schultz is going to cost. No, I like both the young tight ends, man. I think both of them do a lot of good things, uh, especially for guys who haven't played that much. And so, no, you're exactly right. They got a really good tight end room right now when Dalton Schultz gets back with the three of those guys. And uh, next year, when those, to me, when those guys are your top two tight ends, they'll be fine. Um, Ferguson, I really like, and uh, what's his name, Hendershot? Yeah, Hendershot. Uh, uh, he's done a lot of good things, man, in limited time. Uh, starting with that last preseason game where he made some noise, I think he scored at least one touchdown, maybe two. Uh, but he's got a lot of potential as a receiver. Jake Ferguson's doing, you know, he's like Dalton Schultz light right now. So, no, I think they're fine. And this is how you save salary cap money, bro, just on, on drafting well. Yeah, that's exactly how you do it. And, and so we'll see. That, that was a thought that I had just kind of been thinking about. The other thing, I wanted to paint the picture of this Cowboys defense. And I, I know we're only three weeks into the season, and, and it's wild that three weeks in, the two undefeated teams, Philadelphia, Miami, only one team has lost all their games and that is the 0-3 Las Vegas Raiders, and that's because the Texans had a tie. They're 0-2-1. Everybody else in the NFL, the other 28 teams, are either 1-2 or 2-1 after three weeks. Again, there's no dominant team, and I don't think it would surprise anybody for Miami or Philadelphia to lose this upcoming week. I think Philadelphia plays Jacksonville. That might surprise some people, but not after what Jacksonville did to the Chargers over the weekend. And I'm trying to remember who Miami had. I think they're on the road to Cincinnati. Wouldn't surprise anybody if Cincinnati beat Miami at home. So that's the league that we're in. But there's some numbers through three weeks for the Cowboys. They've only given up three touchdowns to their opponents. That is tied for the fewest touchdowns allowed through the first three games of a season in Cowboy franchise history. How about that? Through three games, they have the third fewest blitzes in the NFL, blitzing just 11% of the time, but they lead the NFL in sacks. 
They get pressure on 20% of dropbacks. They're third in quarterback hits. They lead in tackles for a loss. Tied for the lead in fewest touchdowns allowed with Denver and Tampa, who have also allowed just three. Tied for the fewest red zone trips against with just four trips to the red zone for opposing offenses in three games. I mean, again, I know we're only three games into this, and it's funny because last year we're all looking at going, man, are we watching the best offense in the history of the Cowboys organization? And I'm starting to wonder, are we about to watch the best defense that this organization has ever rolled out? That's saying a lot, bro, because we've had Doomsday, which had Hall of Famers on. Yeah. And we had Doomsday 2. You know, we had the Dirty Dozen. We had the Cowboys of the early 90s that didn't have a nickname, uh, but it finished number one overall at least once. Um, so that says a lot. But, uh, you know, I think I told you this at some point a few weeks ago. To me, the one thing that they have that makes them good is they're not rolling out any bad players. They got a, they, maybe they got some average players, but they don't have any bad players. And it's different between bad and average or below average and average. And uh, they're in pretty good shape with guys that they roll out can play. Yeah, and I guess to my point, in this day and age of the NFL, in, in which you, you're not supposed to win with your defense, I think we're all familiar with that. I mean, you're supposed to win because you can score a bunch of points. You're the Chiefs, you're the Eagles, you're Cincinnati last year, and your defense just has to be okay. I'll just be on to be curious to see where a defense like this, a defense right. where they gave up all kinds of points last year. I mean, they were okay, I guess, but offensively, I mean, we're talking about the number one offense in the NFL last year. To flip that to the offense that they have this year while maintaining so far a top 10 defense, how good of an opportunity they have to be defensively this year as this thing progresses? No, I mean, you know, guys like, even a guy like Doris Armstrong, who hadn't played a lot, he's going to be better, or he should be, you know, week 10 as opposed to week two because he's getting his first extended play in his entire career. And you got some other guys like that, man. So I expect the team to get better. And, uh, you know, I really like Dan Quinn's approach to defense, man. It's all about finding the best matchup for his particular guys and exploiting weaknesses in the offense and turning his guys into playmakers. I really like that because too many times defenses don't do that. They just kind of adjust to what the offense does. And here he's literally saying, these are my best players. I'm going to put them in position to make plays. Yeah, and it's just – it's one of those teams – I mean, again – all they've done so far this season, Tampa had 19, since he had 17, the Giants had 16. Now, surely at some point, some team, I don't know that it's going to be Washington, maybe the Rams or the Eagles when we get there with the offenses that they have. But I think if you can go through any three, four-game stretch in a season in this day and age in the NFL and you hold, you hold that many teams under 20 points, that's pretty damn good in today's world. No, it's damn good, bro, because... You know, they'll have a bad game at some point this year. Who knows when they'll come? Maybe they'll have a couple of them. It's the NFL. That happens to every team in the league. Um, but the way that they play and the number of good players that they have, those games are going to be few and far between. Because uh, they still haven't gotten the turnovers yet. You know, they're pressuring yeah. the quarterback. They're doing a bunch of other stuff. They haven't gotten the turnovers yet. And when the turnovers come and with the kind of pressure they're applying, the turnovers should come at some point. Um, they're really going to be hell to deal with. And for me, the whole question is, will they tailor their offense so that their defense and special teams can help them win games? Because it's not a great offensive team this year. 
It is not a great offensive team. I would say that that's very, very true. As a matter of fact, I think they're third in fewest points scored. They've scored 46 points. I think that's right in three games. Only two teams have had fewer points than the Cowboys. But you look at this. I mean, right now they've only allowed 52 points through three games. They're not by far leading that category. I mean, Tampa's only allowed 27 points in three games. But it's going to be interesting to see the evolution of this defense that has, depending on where you want to use Micah, you've got a couple of, of big-time loaded playmakers up front. you got a playmaker in the middle of your defense. And it, it just, with Trayvon Diggs and, and some of the abilities of the safeties that they have, they, got, they have playmaking defenders at all three levels of the football field. And that just feels rare for this team in the last 10 to 15 years. No, and, you know, you got to see see him last night with Michael Parsons, with Demarcus Lawrence, with uh, Trayvon Diggs, um, making plays all over the field. And that's what it's required, man. You know, so much of the Cowboys have been built around offenses. Jerry Jones bought the team, whether it was triplets in the 90s, whether it was, you know, Romo and Dez and for a couple of years, DeMarco Murray and then Dak and Zeke and, uh, and uh, you know, what, what they've done with Amari Cooper. Well, now it's really a D team driven by defense, and it just takes some time for us to get used to it, I think. Yeah, it, it's taken some time, but I'm here for it, man, especially with as boring as this offense can be at times. I'm almost like, hell yeah, the defense is back out there. Let's see what they can do because there's going to be sacks, and there could be an interception, and you've just got dynamic level playmakers, plus the fact that the best player on the team, Micah Parsons, plays on defense. So I think it's fun when the defense is out there. We're going to have a conversation with Todd Archer, but before we jump into that, let's tell you about Bruce Biltong. We were telling you about this the other night, and again, if, if you haven't had an opportunity, or you're one of our new listeners, and for whatever reason, like, Biltong? What is Biltong? It's like beef jerky, but it isn't. It's a traditional South African air-dried meat. It's Bruce Biltong. That's the brand, Bruce. How's it, Bruce? That's what they say in South Africa. How's it, Bill? That's what they say. It's B-R-U-S-B-I-L-T-O-N-G. You can go online. You get 15% off your order with the promo code JAM15. I have a bag constantly all the time because this has become one of my favorite snacks because it's light, it's easy, it's flavorful, it's tender, it's savory, and it's super high in protein. Dude, I mean, does it get any better than that? 230 calories in a two-ounce pouch. 30 grams of protein. That'll keep the weight off you, keep the muscle on you. Um, I love them. I call them lovingly butt strips uh, because that's the part of the animal that they come from, and then they strip it, and then they they uh, they dry it out, although they keep their succulent and juicy and tasty. I don't know how they do it. It's the process, baby, but trust mm. me. Bill Tong, you need to rock with it. You need to do it. It's Bruise Bill Tong. It's 100% USDA certified beef, air-dried in the U.S., BruiseBillTong.com. Check them out. Telling you, man, if you like beef jerky, you will absolutely love Bill Tong. Make it happen. Also, of course, the podcast made possible by JR and Freeway Tire Shop. I was talking about that the other day. I mean, you've taken all your cars to JR for whether it's an oil change, state inspection, or even some of the heavier work that we all need on our vehicles from time to time. Leaving a mechanic with peace of mind, knowing that you've just had a, an experience that you can trust. I don't know that you can put a price tag on that. And JR, not only is he affordable, you can trust him. No, nah, man. I mean, that to me is what it's all about. He's a um, he's a guy who you trust him to diagnose what's wrong with your car. See, first and foremost, that's what you need done. 
And then you can trust a man to use quality parts to fix your car so that the same problem won't keep happening. Then there's about you can trust him to do what? Charge your fair price. We all know that you go to the dealer, you get overcharged, bro. We all know this. And then, man, you can trust him to stand behind his work. You can find another mechanic who can do all of that on a regular basis. Well, then go to him. If you can't, I'm telling you who to ride with. Five miles uh, north, five minutes north of downtown, right off of 35 in Commonwealth. Pull off. He's right there on the right. You can't miss him. Uh, freeway tire, baby. That's the spot to be. Make sure you let him know. You heard about him on the Jam Session podcast. He'll get you taken care of. You can request a quote, schedule an appointment right now. Jump online at freewaytireshop.com. All right, so let's do this. We'll check in with our ESPN NFL Nation Cowboys reporter, Todd Archer, joining us. And, man, interesting game in New York. The Cowboys are now 2-1. and one. They get a win they had to have. But what do you take away from a game in New York with what the defense did and, and how dominant they were, especially up front with the constant pressures? They've got a really good defense, it looks like. Yeah, right. I mean, we talked about it leading into the season that they're going to have to win games with their defense, and that's what they're doing. I mean, you know, I think Daniel Jones just got pressured again and they're not even playing today. Um, <laughs> he's running for his life. I mean, it, you know, now a little concerning that he was able to scramble free and run around a little bit when you look at some of the quarterbacks they got in their schedule later on. That, that may be an issue that they, uh, they were susceptible to yesterday. But, I mean – the guy threw it 37 times and did not throw for 200 yards. That, that's good defense. And, you know, there are, how many takeaways would you say that they missed, right? I think there was a fumble that the referees didn't call, that McCarthy didn't challenge. And Diggs had at least two other chances for interceptions where a year ago he makes the play. So, yeah, this is this is a really good defense. I don't know. It's too early for a nickname for him, but uh, they're trending in that <laughs> it's direction. Never, it's never too early for a nickname, man. Never too early. Well, I'm not going to give you what I think it, what I'm going to come up with because I know you'll just steal it for <laughs> one of the 28 outlets you write for. I can't believe you said that, Arch. I'm truly hurt. <laughs> I, I apologize. I'm truly, I'm truly hurt. Uh, maybe that'll do it with the Skyline Raiders 1985 defense called Soul Patrol Plus One. Yeah, I don't think that works. No, oh, okay. Uh, I threw it out there. All right, screw uh, what it. This is what I no. This this is what I, I'm playing off the team's history and Dan Quinn's history. You ready for this? Legion yeah. of Doom. Oh, huh? okay. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. I like yeah, that. Legion of Boom. We got Doomsday. Yeah. Doom. All right. I'll throw it out there in my next column. See if people like it, and so I'll give you credit. <laughs> okay. Appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, what do you think the best aspect of this defense is? I don't know how you don't start with the pass rush. I mean, they lead the league in sacks with 13, it was, it was 22 pressures, I think, yesterday. He was pressured on half of his or more than half of his dropbacks. Um, you know, it, it has to be the pass rush. And it's not just Micah, as good as Micah is. It, it, you know, six guys have recorded at least a sack. You saw Lawrence break out yesterday. Lawrence Armstrong has three sacks. Van Der Esch has a sack. Donovan Wilson has a sack. Dante Fowler has a sack. I mean, it, it, it's multiple guys. And, you know, Jerry, when, when Jerry talks about pass rush and defensive line play, he always goes back to those 90s Cowboys where they were rolling. How many guys were they rolling through there, Doc? Eight, nine, ten guys a week? Yeah, yeah. That there probably wasn't a great 
pass rusher among the group besides Charles Haley. Um, but there was a lot of really good pass rushers. And I think that's what this, this group has. There's a lot of, a lot of good pass rushers in there. Now, in, in Mike is special. And I think Demarcus Lawrence is better than good. Um, but you still want to see him be able to get back to that form that earned him that contract in, in terms of getting double digits back. Yeah, and, and you bring that up, and we saw a little bit of that last night with Tank and how effective he was on Evan Neal. It almost looked like they were about to turn him into Chaz Green from the Atlanta game <laughs> a few years ago with Tank. I mean, they just had no answer. Three sacks, and he who knows? He might have got a fourth if he hadn't gotten tripped up going through the middle of the line when, when Donovan Wilson got there first. Yeah, and, and I can think of what I think it was him on one occasion where Jones was able to get free from from Demarcus near the sideline and, and either completed a pass or threw it out of bounds or whatever. So yeah, you're you're looking at probably four sacks, but his his pressure total now in the game they only put him down for three. But on the ESPN stat, he had five in the first twelve pass plays. So you know Evan Neal was which pick overall was he? Seventh, I think, right? Guy. Yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah, seven. You know, and then you look at where Ty- what Tyler Smith was able to do. Now, he's not wasn't going against the same quality of pass rusher, but if there was one guy coming into the draft, I said, oh, that guy's going to be a 10-year stud, no bones about it. I would have said Evan Neal, and we saw him look like a rookie, even though he played in Alabama. Like, you know, this – these games aren't going to be pretty. We've always talked about that. And I think in some respects, at least when you're playing the Giants and, and Washington, which they're doing this week, first to 20 wins. And you might have to do a little bit more against Philadelphia the way that, that they're going. But, you know, this is after the start against Tampa Bay, A, there were only – no one saw this style of play or seeing the Cowboys win both these games. To get to two and one, I don't think, or the majority of people thought the season was over when they lost to Tampa and Dak went down. But this is this is a team that is showing that it's got a little something to it, and we'll see how long they can uh, sustain it with or without Dak when he comes back. There, there's, there's, but I think they found their. I hate the term that McCarthy uses. They found their play style, and I think the last two weeks, this is what they have to continue, even when Dak comes back to the lineup. Sorry, I was going to jump in. Cooper Rush and, and what he's done. I know, Jerry, and we were joking about it last week. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no quarterback controversy. But how impressed have you been with how effective Cooper Rush has been? I mean, he's, he's, I wouldn't say he's been perfect, but he's been pretty close to as good as you can be as a backup quarterback. Oh, yesterday, think of the plays that he should have made for him. Obviously, we know about the CD drop on the, on the deep ball in the, in the second quarter. Tolbert missed a pass. Uh, CD probably, if he had to do it over again, would go up for another deep ball that was in his hand, but he waited for it to come down, and the Giants defender was able to – he was putting passes where they needed to be. I, I don't remember – you know, we talked about the Cincinnati game where there were a few plays where like, ah, that could have been a pick. He might have had three or four passes intercepted in this one. I don't remember one from yesterday's game where you say, well, that should have been intercepted. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's doing everything you want your backup quarterback to do. And, and – for Cooper Rush's sake, he is now going to have a 12-year NFL career based on these three games. Someone is always going to sign him as a backup, be it the Cowboys or whoever, because they're always going to have in the back of their mind what he was able to do. And this is 
think of the other redheaded quarterback, Zach, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, that played there for a while, Jason Garrett. He lived off the 94 Thanksgiving Day game that got him contract after contract and, and, and kept him around in the NFL maybe longer than anybody would have thought. Yeah. Then he had another stretch where he played five games, and I think he went three and two and, you know, performed solidly. And whatever doubts you had from the 94, that that – just showed you, yeah, okay, if we need him over a longer stretch, he could do it. You know, I wrote in uh, my 10 truths <clears throat> that I do after every game for the Dallas Morning News that uh, just, what, just what you said, that he made him not only uh, about his career longevity, but he made him a bunch of money because he's on a one-year deal for $1 million. Somebody, if it's not Dallas, would be happy to pay him a lot more than that just to have a reliable backup so if their guy gets hurt, the season isn't over. Yeah, I don't think you're, there will be a team in the league that says, "Okay, we need to go make Cooper Rush our starting quarterback." Right. But he is a yeah, but he's a guy that's going to get four million a year as a backup. Like he's yeah, on the Chase Daniel it. plan now, right? Yeah, four or five million. And, yeah. And the best part about the Chase Daniel plan is he barely played, and he still made however many millions as a backup in all those spots that he's at. Um, but yeah, he, he's. Add another dynamic to the Cowboys' salary cap because you would think once you have a backup quarterback that has played this well that you wouldn't want to lose them and you're not going to have to completely break the bank to keep them. Right. But they still got to pay their other quarterback about $50 million if they choose to in a uh, in about a year and a half. Yeah. If they, and, yeah, if they choose to. I mean, he's got two years left on his deal. They, they might want to look to extend them sooner just to – create some salary cap wiggle room if that's the way they want to go. Or if you're going to play it out, play it out. you got to start thinking about drafting. We talked about this last week, I think. you got to start thinking about drafting the guy in the first and second round, either in 2023 or certainly in 2024. Yeah, and it may get to that point. What did you make of the way that they split on offense with Tony Pollard had 13, Zeke had 15, and it, it felt like they had finally figured out the perfect balance of how they want to use those two guys? Yeah, um, I asked, and to me, the most interesting part was at the end of the game, Pollard yep. was the closer. And, yep. and I asked Mike McCarthy that question after. He's like, "No, that was just the, the rotation that we have, and the and the you know, it, it wasn't anything about what Z couldn't do. In other words, was, or I thought it might have been, hey, they they let Pollard do it because they they saw that his speed on the edge is giving the Giants fit, so that's the best way." To, to attack it late. I thought that was interesting that he was the quote unquote closer, um, you know, in, the, in their, in their final true series. Um, but yeah, they, they, I think it's a really effective run duo and Pollard has shown what he can do when, with the, with the big plays the last two weeks. And, and I think Zeke has been extremely effective. I mean, you, you know, I, it's funny. We're at the airport this morning, me and Chill, and people don't know who you are, but you can hear some Cowboys fans, and and they're like, "Man, Zeke, all he had was one good run, and he had the twenty-seven yarder there, I think, on third and twelve or whatever it was." I'm like, I just want to say, no, he had a lot of good runs. You just you just want to say the the only good run he had was the long run. Zeke's yeah. playing really well. If people just want to don't whether people want to admit it or not, the touchdown run was good. I mean, hit broke yeah. the initial contact. Ran through somebody and then lunged in. Yeah, that, that didn't look like a touchdown as soon as he got the carry, as soon as he got the ball, but he uh, he turned it into one. Now, I was very critical a few weeks ago 
uh, about Tyler Smith. Like, if you can't beat out Conor McGregor, I mean, Conor McGovern, then they drafted the wrong dude. Uh, well, he wasn't able to beat out Conor. McGregor. He he beat out Conor McGregor though. So not, but not. <laughs> and, and to be fair, Conor McGregor is a multi-time champion, so that's saying something, <laughs> right? And, and you know, Conor McGregor does not have the build to play guard. So let's. I mean, you know, the fact that Man. Tyler was able to. Sorry, Josh, we had to jump yeah. off that one. <laughs> Conor McGregor is more of a slot receiver than he is a guard. I would say, but, but go ahead, Josh. Sorry. Yeah, now Jacques has muted himself. And I don't know if he realizes it or not. <laughs> now he's playing. Uh, he's playing pretty good uh, because we're not noticing him, and he's been a real factor in the run game. Um, is he playing better than you thought, or is this what you thought? Uh, it's better than what I thought, just because we didn't see him play left tackle at all in the summer. So, um, yeah, it's 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 better than what you thought, and it's not like he's gone against. You know, no pass rushers here the first couple couple weeks either. So he's he's done a he's done a really nice job, and I I think it was the Zeke run where he picked off three guys, not just two, he picked off three. So you know, it, 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 remember the the Leo Collins in the preseason game, everybody's going back to the pancakes that he threw in that up in right. Seattle. That was to me that was Tyler Smith's highlight right there was was, was knocking down those three guys. Um, they're still going to be growing pains, and they're still you know there was a penalty that was a holding that was declined and I think he had another penalty in there but it all depends on what your expectations I, I, I don't even want to put it like that because that means you're just damning him with faint praise he's done better than anybody expected him to do and, and the kid deserves a lot of credit for uh, doing it and I think the Cowboys feel the same way because we're seeing Jason Peters play left guard not left tackle he's playing a position he's never played so that tells you the Cowboys say we just want to keep this guy at left tackle and not have to move him at all. And when whenever Tyron Smith comes back, or if Tyron Smith comes back, then they'll make a decision. But he's their left tackle, and it wouldn't surprise me in, uh, here in a couple of weeks that you'll see Jason Peters as the full-time left guard. I think they're ramping up him in a preseason mode, right? It was 14 snaps this week. I bet you against Washington it goes up to 25. Yeah. 30 something like that and then you know maybe maybe he becomes a starter against the rams but wouldn't it be interesting if his first true start was against philadelphia on sunday night football in the middle of october god that'd be something oh, hell yeah now i thought peters played pretty good for his limited snaps um oh yeah he had the key block there and the or one of the key blocks on on pollard's uh 46 yard run yeah the first play they put him in i mean boom yeah. next thing you know there they go right down the left side they just seem to move better on the left i mean they when he was in the game it was obvious they were making more of an effort to get it on the left side and they were having success there yeah i mean <laughs> he's a, he might not have played he's played a lot of football if not left guard and it, he might not know all of the language and things like that yet, but again, he's played a lot of football. He's seen a lot of football, and he's he was for 14 snaps. You know, he he was pretty good. Now we'll see how a 40 year old handles 28 snaps, and then 56 snaps, and then whatever it's going to be as he goes forward. Um, and you know, and he does have an injury history of maybe not missing a bunch of games, but certainly having to come out of of games and maybe going back in and things like that. So, but yeah, no, so far so good for what, what he was able, uh, able to do. What was your, so did, whoop, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. No, no you, you jumped ahead, in. Nope. No, no, I yep. insist that you, okay. I'm point, this is the Cowboys press conference. I'm pointing to Jacques right here in case you're one of the Man, seniority. <laughs> it always happened. 
<laughs> That's why they go to David Moore first every time. It's just because you're old. Yeah. Oh, okay, fine. I, I get with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you um, what you thought about uh, Donovan Wilson, and when J. Ron Kirsch returns, is there a spot for him somewhere? I, well, yeah. Um, for, for who? For Jaron Kirsch or Donovan Wilson no. or both? Donovan Wilson. Yeah, I think there's, there'll be a spot for him, and I think you'll see them go to that free safety look more. Uh, they, they've done it a little bit here uh, with McQuamu, but I think when you have all three of those guys playing, I think that's a look that you see them go to. And, and, and really, in effect, in training camp anyway, that free safety package was their bait defense. Um, so I think you'll, you'll see more of that when Curse is back. Maybe he has a chance this week against Washington, but maybe more likely uh, the following week against the Rams. Um, and again, you know, here's a guy who made his opportunity in a bad year, the COVID year, the team stinks. He, he was able to find the ball and do some things. And then yesterday was probably his best game, had the 11 tackles and the sack, a tackle for loss, quarterback hurries. He's a guy who always seems to find himself um, around the ball. Um, but not, not just him. I mean, you know, we talked about Noah Brown stepping up and doing some things. The two tight ends that, that come in, uh, Ferguson and Hendershot stepping in and doing things. Cooper Rush, shoot, I didn't even say him first. You know, th- this isn't a team that's playing at 100% capacity, and they got guys coming in that are off the bench and filling in and doing really good jobs of of holding up. Marquis Bell at a tackle in his limited play time on a jet sweep did a nice job. Still got a first down, but he did a good good job there. I mean, you, you're seeing guys with their opportunities, make plays. And that's what good teams do. You don't, you're not relying on 11 guys or 13 guys on offense and 13, 14 guys on defense. You're relying on the collective. And I think Mike McCarthy deserves some credit for that. Here's a guy, let's talk about McCarthy. I was talking to a buddy of mine on the way up here, like how this thing is structured here. The guy will get no credit ever for how this team has done the last couple of games. But if they were 0-3, what would, what would everybody be saying? Huh? Yeah. Now this is the big boys, and you know, hey, you got to deal with a lot of crap, and you know, th- this is this is the life you chose. But again, I think McCarthy deserves some credit for how this team has played and responded, and and not really um, panicked when in the past we've seen this team lose one guy and the season go down the toilet. No, we've seen that several times, bro. Yes, <laughs> very much so over the years. C.D. Lamb, everybody was ready. Up, oh, he's not going to be the number one. He can't do it. Drops the wide open pass that probably would have been a touchdown. But then he kind of redeemed himself with the great grab in the end zone. What are you making of C.D. Lamb so far in this offense as he goes on this journey to become the number one wide receiver? Yeah, he talked about it after the game. How there's ebbs and flows to this thing. That there's going to be down times, but it's you know when it goes good, it's going to go good. And in the second half, it went really good for him, particularly in that. The, the drive that ended with his one-handed touchdown, uh, you know, he had four catches for 48 yards, the key play, and he said it was his best catch and most important catch was the fourth down play, where it was fourth and four, and he got about four and a quarter yards maybe, but it was enough to get the first down to keep that drive going, and kudos again to McCarthy for having the stones to, to go for it there. Um, but, yeah, you knew everybody was saying, and, and Dez was at the game, you know, everybody's saying, well, Mike, because I wrote the story on the 88, everybody's saying, see, they should have let him wear 10. He didn't deserve to wear 88, blah, 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 all this stuff. 
and look, that's going to be part of the story for him for a while. But the fact that he was able to answer that and come back and make some big catches, six of his eight catches in the second half, um, you know, since the opener where he was two catches with 29 yards, he's done number one thing. But you don't want that drop. It has to stick with you because if he makes that play, it's probably a different game and you're not really putting it out because you knew the Giants weren't going to do much against you. True that, true that. Fair enough. Todd Archer, as always, man, we appreciate the time. Thanks for doing it. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, see you. All right, buddy. So let's take a trip around the block as we move forward here. Man, we got some stuff to get into. Yes, sir. Now, first off, I'm curious because the other night you were saying that you started watching a couple of new shows. Uh, yeah, one of them was, uh, let's see. Well I, well, I remember the name of the other one. I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm watching Dahmer. Yes. Okay. I was hoping you were because so am I. Man, that dude who's playing Dahmer, he's acting his ass off. I mean, my God. He, Evan Peters is his name. Some of you may Bro. remember him from X-Men movies. Bro. He <laughs> is genius. He has done the damn thing. I mean, my God, he is creepy. Yes. He is detached is a great way to describe it. It is. This is one of those roles where if it was a movie, I'd be like, just give him the Oscar. Yeah. And, you know, it's a it's a fascinating look at Dahmer, the serial killer who had a whole lot of uh, what do you call it? Cannibalism in him. Yeah. He Uh, ate some of his victims. He had 17 people that he killed mostly in the early 90s. He did have a couple of victims before that, but he was known for necrophilia and cannibalism. You know, and I was, the, the, the two things that for me have been most interesting is how he uses the whole gay thing to get away with it. Like most people at that part in that time were like, oh, I'm not gay. And so they shy away from it. The reason why he's getting away with these murders and stuff is he's telling the police, oh, I'm, I'm gay. We're just doing gay stuff. I know you probably think it's a little weird, but, you know, this is just kind of what us gays do. Yeah. And and because he's so disarming with it, people are like, oh, you're right. You're all are kind of weird. You're doing this kind of weird stuff. You know, just keep it down over there, man. And they leave and I'm going, wow. Yeah, the homophobia of the time period of the late 80s and early 90s was so extreme at times that they refused to check in and investigate a little bit more because he would he used it almost as a shield. He'd be like, no, 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 here's what here's what it is. And like, oh, no, 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 we don't need to see any of that. Just keep it to yourself, man. All right. Anyway. Yeah, like you're talking about it is. It's a riveting series. I will say this. I've had multiple people say that they had to stop watching it because they were so disturbed by it. That almost happened to me once the other day. Something was about to go down. I was like, ah, I don't know. And again, <laughs> keep in mind, this is a television show that is a docu-series. It is as real as it can get based on victims' stories, the families and They're whatnot, probably- and the police research. And there are th- some things in this series that are word for word exactly how it went down. Yeah, I was going to say, they're probably getting courtroom testimony and police, uh, you know, police tapes and recreating dialogue and all this other stuff. It's, uh, dude, he is creepy. And I'm not going to give it to away because it's still new enough that a lot of people may not have seen it yet. But that thing he does with the mannequin man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And bro. he really did that. I mean, like all the stuff and the ways that he's he is committing these crimes and whatnot they're all as far as what's documented 100 percent from police reports testimony things of that nature 
people have to realize Jeffrey Dahmer, once he was caught and arrested, was 100% forthcoming. He thought he was he thought he was evil. He thought he deserved to die. So a lot of this we got from him over the course of time because when he was originally, I, I forget, I think it's something like 60 man hours that he was interviewed and he gave detail after detail after detail of why he did it, what he did, where everything was, how it happened. And so a lot of that, now we have that knowledge of what this monster is the name of it, monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I mean, he, and the way they shoot this, it is so deliberate. I mean, that first episode, the very, I mean, they spend, they must spend 20 minutes of that first episode of you wondering, is he about to kill this guy? And it's, it's slow and it's drawn out, but it, it, my God, it's creepy. Yeah, it is, bro. It's a, uh, it's fantastic, man. It's uh, whew, I'm not done yet, but I no, know. I'm not. I think we're four or five episodes into it, and it's, it's one of those things where we watched uh, an episode the other night, and I told, I turned to the lady, I was like, look, we're gonna have to watch a couple episodes of Seinfeld because we can't go to bed with that in our head. <laughs> well, I, I actually watched episode one again. I was like, man, I was like, this is so detailed. I feel like yeah. I'm missing something, so it, I went back and watched it again. It's so well it was, done. Uh, now the other thing I was watching is uh, Tyler Perry's movie, A Jazz Man's Blues, and uh, you know Tyler Perry does a lot of funny stuff with Madea, yeah. his famous character. Well, this ain't it. <laughs> and this was a uh, I was um, a lot of to me a lot of what he does is entertaining. It's fairly predictable his scripts and stuff, but this one had some had some stuff in it that made you think it was predictable mm. but at every moment where you thought oh okay here's it oh okay i didn't really see that coming and the way it ends i was like oh shit he's really gonna end it like this huh? okay all right i feel it yeah all right i'm feeling that it's a uh the premise of it is really is one of those forbidden love stories you know uh it's and, and I think people can resonate with it because most of us have had a relationship where you go, this person is perfect, basically, but the timing is bad. Yeah. And you can never get the timing right. When you're ready, she's not. When she's ready, you're not. And you just can't get the timing right, but you keep crisscrossing in each other's lives over a period of time. Uh, but it's taken, it's, uh, it's back in the mid-40s. And uh, obviously it's and it's done in uh, Georgia. So there's a lot of racism involved and, uh, you know, Jim Crow South and all of that stuff. But it's kind of a forbidden love story within that. And it's worth your two hours, bro, because it uh, it'll get you in two or three different ways that you didn't see coming. Interesting. All right. To Jazz Man's Blues. Yeah, it was in the uh, Netflix top 10. OK. Uh, yeah. This weekend. All right. Yeah, I, I'll have to check into that. But. Because we are, we had been working our way through the crown, and then this Jeffrey Dahmer thing was getting so much buzz. I was like, man, I kind of want to check this out. And it's only ten episodes, but I, I mean, it's it drains you. <laughs> I mean, See, it I didn't is, realize there's ten episodes. I'm about five through. Yeah, it's ten it's episodes, like, oh, and it, it's another five to watch. It's wow. intense, man. It is like I will say this because I know my mom listens, and and the lady friend's mom. I don't think either of you would enjoy this, <laughs> so. Like my parents have seen some things sometimes where I'm like, oh, it's it's really, really good. But this is very dark. Like very dark, very creepy. It can it's disturbing because you feel, or at least I feel watching it, I feel like I'm there with the victim. Yeah. Like you really get the victim's perspective on this and what it was like to be manipulated and be around 
this person who became one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. Plus, he's slipping everybody roofies. Yeah, he's roofing them. And I mean, it is oh, it's it's just it's one of the creepiest, but not in like a weird horror movie way. It's creepier oh. because it's real. I mean, this is really how it went down. And to see how people could get pulled into these things where stuff like this could happen. You know, he lived basically, I mean, remember then the cops came over and they're like, why are you living here, dude? This is like where all the crack houses are. He's like, mm, yeah, well, it's kind of cheap. <laughs> you know, and it's just that, but he lives there. You know why? Because nobody gives a crap about that area. Yep. That's exactly why he lives there. That, which is why, like, the lady that lived next to him had called and complained that something was stinking in his apartment. Nobody ever came to check it out. Why? Because the area and, and that whole, what they thought of those people that lived there. No, that's exactly right. I mean, this dude, woo, it's creepy. Yeah, it is. So the other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is the opposite of creepy because this was badass. You had sent this thing the other day you texted, and I was like, what? No way. This is kind of cool. And it was a NASA spacecraft is going to slam into an asteroid 7 million miles away in an unprecedented rehearsal for the day that a rock menaces the Earth. And <laughs> so I, I knew that this was going to happen, and I clicked to read the story the other day. I clicked to read it, and I see it's going to happen at 6.14 p.m., I had clicked on it at 6.09 p.m. And here's a link if you want to watch it live. I'm like, oh, my God, this is happening in five minutes. I will watch this. So I watched the NASA feed of this spacecraft that we had sent into space as it slammed into an asteroid on Monday afternoon. Well, how was it? It was really, really interesting because you had the NASA people who were talking on the video and whatnot. I mean, it's like in their control room. So you hear all the technical stuff and you hear them kind of explaining why they're doing this and, and everything. And all of a sudden you kind of see this dot far off. You're like, oh my God, there's the asteroid. And then now it, you can't stream. We haven't figured out how to nonstop stream from 7 million miles away. But it was basically sending a picture like every second or every second and a half. So it was updating. Well, this thing is traveling so fast that... By the time it got to 30 seconds, it's like, man, no way it's going to hit that thing in 30 seconds. And then 10 seconds, like, holy crap, it's right there. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, they're counting it down. And as it got closer to the asteroid, like people at NASA are like, oh, ooh, look at the boulders on that thing. Oh, look at that. <laughs> and you could see like the surface of this asteroid. It was like, like looking at a foreign planet. And then the next thing you know, it just goes dark. Whoa. So what happened? The direct hit. We got a direct hit on the asteroid. Okay, 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 okay. And this is one of those things we've seen. If you ever saw the movie Deep Impact or Armageddon that both came out in 1998, it, it was kind of like this where they had the idea, well, here comes an asteroid. It's going to destroy the Earth. We have to knock it off course. And so that was what NASA did on Monday evening. They slammed a, a massive spacecraft into the asteroid to see kind of what would happen. What would it do? Would it knock it off its trajectory? That type of thing as part of planetary defense strategy. Damn, that sounds, that sounds heavy, bro. This was a project <laughs> known as the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, a.k.a. DART. It started seven years ago and cost over $300 million. Wow. They launched the craft into space last November to intercept this thing some 10 months later. 
Who found, who comes up with this? Story? I don't know, man. I don't know, but it was watching it. I'm like, my God, we're, you know, this, this thing is going 14,000 miles an hour. And here it is. And you got to kind of watch it as I think I tuned in and I think it was like 20,000 miles away from it. Wow. Or, or something. I mean, it was thousands of miles away from it, something like that. And it just made it up so fast. And then boom, there it goes. And it was the size of a football stadium, the asteroid. I mean, think about that. There's a rock floating around that's the size of a football stadium. Yeah, man. I mean, I mean it, it is really nuts. Really, really interesting. It's incredible, incredible, incredible. So I haven't seen what the aftermath was. Did it work? Did it knock it off? I haven't seen. I was just trying to find if anybody had said something, but it'll be curious to see what they learned from this and, and how we might utilize this at some point in the future if we needed to do so to save humanity. Dude, I, I wouldn't, you know, at some point, uh, I think that'll happen. I mean, you know, it's uh, they'll have to use it, I think, at some point. I have no idea when, but it wouldn't shock me if at some point they have to do that to uh, send something off, a little bit off gear, because think about it, all these things floating around in space. It just seems like it makes sense that at some point one of them is going to crash into the to the uh, to the earth. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the dinosaur extinction thing, you know, that something hits the earth that's so large that it, we just go into a nuclear winter, basically, and all life on earth dies out. Yeah, I don't hope I'm around when that's happening. No, see, and I, I, I've wondered, like, if that if I was here and they came on and said, look, we've tried everything. There is an asteroid in the sky that everybody is aware of, and we have not been able. It's going to hit Earth in a week. I mean, to me, I'm like, what do you do? Like, you could panic and freak out, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, you can't do anything about it. It just is what it is. And I right, think right, I'd right. just enjoy hanging out for a week, and, and hopefully some breweries still got some good beer left and kind of hang out with some friends, and we're all just sitting there watching the horizon when that thing hits, and we just kind of look at each other and be like, well, see you later. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you do. Maybe my sense of survival should kick in and I need to be more intense about this. I don't know. Yes, you do. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so the other thing you said, I thought this was interesting because I, I don't know. I was curious. Like, I, can't, I have a hard time imagining that you actually watched this. But <laughs> this was a show that made its debut many, many years ago. And the other day, actually Monday was the anniversary of this. September 26th of 1969 was the day that the Brady Bunch premiered on ABC. Dude, that was my show, man. Really? The Brady Bunch? What do you mean, really? I mean, I've I mean, seen I mean, it in reruns and stuff, and I just thought, I don't know, I guess I was a kid when I watched it. It was hokey. I guess maybe yeah, at the I mean, time that had to be kind of cool. You got you to gotta remember, man, I grew up in the age of hokey TV. Whether it was the Brady Bunch, whether it was Welcome Back, Cotter, whether it was Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, it was all hokey TV. I mean, that's what I grew up on in the. Uh, let me see. I grew up in the late seventies and, and mid eighties. You know, I'd say from you know like seventy five to eighty five. That was me yeah. growing up. So yeah, bro, that was. I mean, that was what was on TV. Yeah, it ran five seasons, one hundred and seventeen episodes, and I, I remember it well because I think. There was a time before we had, and this is even when I was a kid and there was still, you know, 20 channels or whatever there was. There wasn't, I'm not going to say there's only three channels, but they used to show this on reruns all the time in the 80s. And I mean, I've seen who knows how many episodes of the Brady Bunch just off of reruns. Dude, I'm sure I've seen them all. 
Like, I remember as a little kid thinking, got to be honest with you, kind of thought Cindy Brady had a little something going on. See, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, who didn't like who didn't like Marsha? You know, yeah, Marsha, as you got older. I mean, that's the one thing about the TV that's great is, you know, you see it when you're 10. You're like, oh, that Cindy girl's cute. And then you're still watching it at 15. You're like, oh, Marsha's kind of hot. Right. You kind of graduate, and the family stays the same age. <laughs> and then when Jan gets rid of her braces, you go, hey. Yeah, watch hey, out, Jan. Alice. And you know, She's got a little something to her. Weird Alice. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting. They had that weird homemaker lady that was like their maid or whatever she was. She used to get down with Sam the Butcher. That's right. She did get down with Sam the Butcher. <laughs> See, who doesn't love that stuff, man? Who, who, you know what? Who doesn't love that stuff? And then finally here in the block, this one, and this, this is probably one of the better ones outside of the Dahmer. It was this time back in 1987 that the number one album in the country was Michael Jackson's seventh studio album, simply known as Bad. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to put this one up there with Thriller as one of the greatest albums of all time. But this is a pretty solid album. It had Bad. It had The Way You Make Me Feel. It had Man in the Mirror, which is a great song. Yeah, it is. Dirty Diana, Smooth Criminal were on this. So a Ooh. solid, and then obviously Bad, which is, I mean, one of the all-time great Michael Jackson songs. Uh, smooth Criminal. That's, that was my jam off of that album. Video was off the chain. That, that was it for me, man. Bad was cool. But I thought Bad was a little weird. I, I just, I never took Michael as Mr. Tough Guy. Uh, but Man in the Mirror was great. I mean, it's you know, and it was coming off of Off the Wall and uh, Thriller. Yeah. So, I mean, you do those back to back, anything seems to pale in comparison. Yeah, Off the Wall was pretty solid. I see. I would, I would take Thriller, and I, I would take Bad over Off the Wall personally. Just as a personal choice. I don't know, bro. I think I had. Off the Wall was like, yeah, nah, I got to rock with Off the Wall, man. But man, I mean, Man in the Mirror is one of his songs that I think, like, if you ask people name 10 Michael Jackson songs, I don't know if they'd name that one. And then you go, what about Man in the Mirror? They're like, oh, damn. Yeah, man, that is really good. <laughs> I'm asking him to change his way. Oh, is that how you get it? Is that how you hit it? <laughs> Man, I used to have, when I waited tables, we had a, a one guy, and he could sing that song, like, with a Michael Jackson impression, like, spot on. Like, really? it was nuts. Like, he couldn't do anything else Michael Jackson. But the I way that he would do, it. man in the mirror. I mean, you're just like, my God, it sounds just like him. This is nuts. <laughs> do something else. He's like, I can't. I can't do any other Michael Jackson. Wow, that's it. Yeah, but he could hit Man in the Mirror, and it sounded exactly like it sounds in the song. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> Go figure, bro. Yeah, I remember that dude. His name was Mark. It was he. It worked. It worked very, very well for him. And I used to ask him, I was like, do it, man. Come on. Because you just nailed it, and it sounds dead on exactly the way that it needs to sound like that. Wow. I'm telling you. That? I am telling you, it was one of those things, like, when you hear it, you're just kind of like, wow, all right, I got gotcha. you. But yeah, Michael Jackson, man, that was, what was that? What is that? 25 years? No, 35 years ago. God, 1987, 35 years away. Yeah, because I was a uh, sophomore in college. 
You know, that's one of those when you start thinking about it and you go, I can't believe 1987 was 35 years ago away because 2057 is 35 years away. Bro, it just seems like forever from now. Man. Yeah. And 1987 (laughs) doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Yeah. I think I'll still be here. I'll just be 90. In 2057? Yeah. Yeah. I, I should still be here. I'll be in my late 70s. Yeah, I'll be here. Why not? I'm, I'm planning on living until like 2080. So, And by the time that comes around, the technology we'll have might be able to even extend that to 2100. <laughs> and at that point, do you think we have the technology where they can send me to a planet that you age backwards or something? You know, bro, by that point, anything will be possible. I mean, my God, 2100. Will the Earth even still be here in 2100, or will we, will we have done our best to completely destroy it by then? I don't know. Oh, we're giving it a hell of a shot, bro. Seems like we are. That's very, we're very true. Our, we're trying our best to destroy it. That's very true. Because people just, I, I don't know, man. We have too many people. There's a reason why we haven't discovered the other planets and civilizations that have billions of people on one rock. <laughs> I'm just telling you, man, the Fermi paradox. Go look it up. All right, we all need to be ants. (laughs) Yes, we all do need to be ants. All right, before we continue and get into our next guest here, we've got Calvin Watkins that we're going to chat with, and he's got a new book that's out I thought was really, really good. I read it. Let's tell you real quick about HFX Foundation Solutions. Full-service repair company, if you are in the DFW area, they can help you. Whether it's sticking doors, those cracks in the walls, and and maybe in your driveway, in your garage that you're starting to notice, and you go, wait a second. I don't think that was here a couple months ago. That are all things that your home could be doing to signal to you, hey, man, you got a problem. Why don't you give HFX Foundation Solutions a call? It's a free, no-obligation inspection. They're local. They're family-owned. Aaron will come out, and, and they'll have a conversation, and... Maybe you don't have anything wrong, but maybe you do. And if you do, you want to catch it early. Bro, that's, I mean, the whole thing is to catch it early. The whole thing is to give your house what we lovingly call a colonoscopy. So any problems, you can get out ahead of them. I mean, think about how bad the weather's been this year. You know, we had all that extreme heat, like drought-like conditions. Then we had all that rain, flooding stuff. All that can mess with your foundation, man, cause your house to shift that's what leads to those stick, you know, cracks in the wall and those sticky doors and sticky windows. And you don't want that, man. So give Aaron and his team a call, 817-770-0174. Say, yo, I need a colonoscopy for my house. And after they stop laughing, they'll hook you up, schedule you. And it, it doesn't cost anything to come out there and have a look at it and just make sure that you're safe and get that peace of mind, bro. It's easy to do. 817-770-0174, HFX Foundation Solutions. Check them out online. You can find them there as well at hfxfoundation.com. All right, we are joined now. First time joining us on the podcast. Hopefully it won't be his last time because we'd love to talk to him whenever. Many of you know him very well, of course, from his work with the Dallas Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News. Calvin Watkins joining us. And apparently we have to start with the story about New York Stadium. Okay. Uh, Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium. Yeah, Yankee Stadium. Me and uh, uh, John Machota, he covers the the Cowboys for the Athletic. Um, You know, we're big baseball fans. And and Jock can attest to this. Uh, when he was a beat rider 100 years ago, um, you know, if the Cowboys are playing the game on a Sunday or a Monday night, you try to see if there's another sporting event the day before that game, whether it's a hockey game or a basketball game or a college football game or what have you. Uh, so we saw that 
the Yankees were playing on a Sunday and they had moved the game to Sunday night. And as you guys know, uh, Aaron Judge is trying to tie the American League record for home runs at 61, which was set by Roger Maris about a billion years ago. And uh, as the Yankees Red Sox, so we decided to go to the game. We had two different seats on the upper deck. I think I got vertigo because I was holding on to the railing really tight. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to be cheap anymore and pay $54 for tickets. I'm going to start saying, right, I got to pay $150 for some tickets so I won't look like an old man about to collapse up in these in these seats. So, um, but John Matilda, to watching he, uh, he had a long fly ball to left. That was it. You know, that was it. Then he, then he had like an hour and a half rain delay, and then we left. And that's it. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So Red Sox fan get escorted out the stadium. <laughs> some, that's always good. Did some cussing. Uh, we was in the elevator. This guy got on with his girlfriend. He had a Red Sox jersey on. She had a Yankee jersey on. And I said, you should be kissing her feet. And she's allowing you to come into our stadium with the enemy colors on. And he just, like, gave me a look. So I didn't want to get into any issues. I know I had enough bail money to get out of a, of a jail in, in the Bronx. So, but that was it. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty intense, man. If you go to cover a Cowboys game, you got to bail yourself out of a, of a jail in the Bronx. Yeah, that'd be tough. And I wouldn't know who to call. I don't know any bailsmen in New York, but I think my cousins do. I think. But I don't know. If, I don't know if they do. So I had to rely on John Machota to find a bail bondsman at you know nine thirty, ten o'clock at night on a Sunday. That would have been the experience, there's no doubt. But that's pretty cool. I mean, I think that would be really cool to be able to go to a game like that when history is in the air where it might happen at a game that you're at. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, that was the the reason for going. Like, Machota saw it first. Like, he saw it a week ago. At first, he was like, hey, Yankees Red Sox, I'm going to go. He just bought a ticket, and he mentioned it to me in passing, and I was like, ah, maybe, I don't know, because I'm from New York and I have family and and I was going to be up there for a wedding anyway for my niece, so I had a lot of stuff going on. And then Thursday night, uh, he hit uh, home run number 60. And and then Giancarlo Stanton hit a grand slam home run, a walk-off, to win the game. And I'm watching the game, so I called John, and I said, "We're going. I'm going to the game. And I'm on the phone with him. And this is technology, you know, I was on the MLB app and I buy a ticket, you know. So, so when you, especially when you hit number 60, and then for the next three or four nights, I'm watching every game, looking at the box score, making sure he doesn't hit 61 before our behinds get out there to the Bronx. And he didn't, so we had a chance to see history, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it on Monday night, neither, because I think he, um, the Yankees lost, but he didn't have a home run. So it's all good. Well, good experience for you, man. So, you have a new book that came out a couple of weeks ago, I guess. It's called On the Clock, Dallas Cowboys Behind the Scenes with the Dallas Cowboys at the NFL Draft. And I got it. I mean, I got it like the, the day I think it came out or maybe the day after it was released. And I thought... Oh, it makes me cry. It, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I really did. I was telling Jacques about it. I, I guess a week ago we were talking about it. And I said that I'd gotten your book. And, and I thought especially with some of the older players that are in there, some of the stories that you had told, I wasn't like, I know who Staubach is and Ed Tutal Jones and some of those other guys, of course, but I just was fascinated with some of the details of the older stories that you were able to come across and, and really kind of portray in this book. But 
What was kind of the motivation for you to kind of take this angle on writing a book about the Cowboys in the draft? Uh, well, as Jock would tell you, most writers want to write a book at some point in their lives. And uh, sometimes you just say, hey, I'm, I got an idea, and you do it. But in this case, Triumph Books, who's the publisher, they reached out to me like last summer, I want to say, and uh, said, hey, we got a book idea. We want you to do it. They really gave me two ideas. You can, you know, and the first idea was this draft book. And I was like, really? They said, yeah, just tell 10 stories of the draft, the 10 favorite stories for Cowboys fans on the draft. And I was like, really? It's like, yeah. So some of these stories we already know, we already know about Manziel and why they didn't draft him. And we know about Randy Moss. And, but I, I talked about Dak and I, and I talked about uh, Parsons, you know, just to keep it current. But then, as you said, going back and had two tall Jones and Mel Renfro, you know, and then Roger Staubach, you know, and, and all those kinds of things. Like we think about the drafting Roger Staubach, when they drafted him, they were going to wait at least two years for him because they had Don Meredith. And it was interesting to go into Don Meredith's story a little bit uh, about, you know, he was he was the QB one and his own struggles of getting the Cowboys to the next level. And then he just abruptly retires after the ice ball when he lost the Packers. So, um, you know, everything just changed, you know, in Cowboys history, but they had fallback waiting in the wings. So it was good to talk about to relive, well, I guess rehash, uh, some of those stories, you know, obviously I talked about the triplet, um, with Emmett, Michael and Troy. It was good to look at Troy's history, you know, being born in California and then they moved to the, you know, to the, to the country in Oklahoma and how that was such a culture shock for him and those kinds of things. And then Mel Renfro, you know, the Cowboy held up the draft for like eight hours because yeah. he cut his wrist. His wrist, his, his wrist really wasn't career threatening, but, but, back, but back in those days, you know, there was no communication was very lax. So the Cowboys made it seem like the man's wrist was falling off. And really, you know, when you talk to Mel Renfro, he was like, I mean, I was going to be able to play, you know, um, that summer. Because, in fact, the NFL had forced Renfro to play in this summer college showcase, you know, as the year he got drafted. And the Cowboys didn't want him to do it, but the NFL said, no, he's playing. So that tells you that the wrist injury wasn't severe as it led on. But then when he talks about the, the, the marital problems he was having at the time of when he smashed his wrist, it's just like, and Jack knows this about me, when a lot of stuff's on your head, on your, you know, you got a lot of stuff going on, you sometimes you just erupt. And he erupted and smashed his wrist and almost messed up his draft stock. Well, he did. He went from a first-round pick to a second-round pick. So just, you know, going over those stories again with some of those guys was just pretty cool. <clears throat> what was your favorite story? I would say uh, Randy Moss. Um, and I never talked to Randy Moss. Yeah. Um, the reason why is because, you know, everyone says, you know, he got into this fight in high school and that just messed up his whole life. But you have to find out, as I've learned a long time ago, find out why did he get into this fight? You know, why did he make some of these decisions that just messed up his whole college career? And so it was really good just digging into that, like finding out what the fight was about. And then how he he was begging the judge not to put him in jail for a long time. 
and the TV covers of that, and you're going, this is like an 18-year-old kid, and he's going through all this. This, this is like before Twitter, obviously, and, and all the social media stuff. So I thought the things that he went through, and some of the stuff, it was self-inflicted, some of the problems he had was self-inflicted, but he was just helping a buddy uh, in, a, in a racial incident, and that's how it went haywire. And, you know, there was a lack of empathy from NFL teams. They kept going back to the high school incident. And then he was smoking weed, and, you know, back then smoking weed was like doing cocaine, you know, and now today, <laughs> now he smokes weed is no big deal, yeah. you know, and he just, and then uh, Stretch Smith, who was a Cowboys, one of the national scouts, he goes down to West Virginia, and he's, you know, like the two weeks before the draft, and he's doing all this research on Randy Moss. And he brings down this Cowboys jersey with Randy Moss's number on it. And he's, he's down there in West Virginia, and he meets Randy Moss, meets all his people. He's telling the Cowboys, we should draft this kid. He's fantastic. And Jerry's getting – his head is, is spinning because he's got John Garrett, who's a long-time scout, saying, so you got to draft this guy. And he's got Tan Gale. He's like, I want nothing to do with it. And then – He's trying to figure this out, and obviously, as you guys know, they didn't draft Randy Moss. That was like one of my favorite stories. Just to, and, and some people might remember that, you know, and others might not. So you just kind of try to find new nuggets and, and new perspectives on it. Probably what was it twenty years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought going back to like the Mel Renfro thing, and I I didn't even realize this. I learned it from reading your book that originally when the NFL draft was first, like back in the old days, like that, even with Staubach and Tutal Jones and all that, it, like when you describe how the Cowboys hold up the draft for over eight hours so that they they can make a phone call to a doctor, I was like, it blows my mind that back then teams would just take however long they wanted on a draft pick, and the draft could take days and days to complete just a single round like for, I, I don't know how I didn't know that but that was something that because you had multiple stories of the Cowboys I guess with Gil Brandt and those guys back in the day that were notorious for working all the angles like that and just using up all kinds of crazy time on their early picks oh yeah it was like so it was like it's funny because after they finally make the pick he rolls mission at the time he tells the next team you guys got an hour to make the pick. The team just ignores Pete Rozelle, and I think they took three hours to make the next pick, you know? And, and the draft at that time was, was done during the season, toward the end of the year, you know? And it, and it started on, like, on a Monday, you know? And when they drafted Renfro, I think they were in Chicago at that time, I believe. And uh, so, yeah, it was during the week. It would take them 14 hours. Back then, they were drafting 20 players. So and there was no time limit, and half the players they really didn't know. Uh, but the Cowboys were, as, as I'm sure you guys have talked about countless times, were on the cutting edge of computers and scouting and going to HBCUs to find players and that kind of thing. Wow, wow! So when you got a uh, you got a book signing coming up? Uh, give us some details. Yeah, we're going to book signing. Uh, that's, that's the other thing about when you write a book is. You know, you think you write the book and you have all these book signings. So the book comes out and I'm all excited. And, and it didn't, you know, and the guy who works for Triumph, he, he's a cool guy. He's like, oh, no one's doing book signings right now. I go, what? He goes, yeah. So I go to Barnes and Noble. I see these signs where people have book signs. I go, what is this? <laughs> you know, but uh, I probably have a book signing in uh, the first week of October at Industrial Cigars in Frisco. 
and I'll probably take about 20, 30 books and uh, do a book signing there. Um, I might go to Ella B's in Arlington. That's like a soul food restaurant and do a book signing that establishment. So I'm going to piece it together for right now. And it's a draft book. So in January, I think we'll get into Barnes and Noble just before the draft and do another one. And it's almost like this book is you can rehash it again in April. So, yeah. and that, so that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, because there's some really good stories, I think, for anybody who's a Cowboys fan. Because like you said, I mean, some of the, the modern story, like maybe the Dak thing and the Micah Parsons people a little bit more familiar. But it's like in my memory, for whatever reason, I had that the Cowboys traded Herschel Walker for like 15 different players and picks. And reading this is like, man, I didn't realize that like a lot of that was just because of conditional picks and trading for guys from Minnesota that Jimmy Johnson didn't even want. He just wanted to he wanted to get rid of them so they could get the conditional pick or whatever it was. And when you kind of go back and look at that, it, it's maybe even more of a fascinating trade when you really go into the details of it, because I think so many of us had forgotten what really like at the time what the compensation was between the two teams. Oh, yeah. And then Herschel at first didn't want to go. And, you know, um, so then Jerry said, all right, I'll buy you a house. In uh, Minneapolis, he couldn't buy his own. You know, that was nice. You know, know, Herschel's true. You know, he's all about pocket. So you know, it was was like little side deals like that. There was there was a guy uh, that the Vikings were trading to the Cowboys that didn't want to go to Dallas because he heard Dallas was just a bad place. It was too hot. So so he almost held up the trade. You know, so there's a lot of little things like that. Um, you know, John Wooten was kind of like the guy who kind of got the trade going because when he called Jerry Burns, who was the coach of the Vikings, he said, hey, you know, we're looking for a linebacker. And, you know, they're talking, and, and the general manager just happens to be walking by, and he goes, who is that? They're talking to the Cowboys. And, you know, they're looking to trade Herschel. And, but, you know, right now we're talking about this linebacker. And he's like, they're looking to trade Herschel. Give me the phone. So he takes the phone, and he's talking to John about <laughs> – what do you want for Herschel Walker? And that's how it kind of jumped off. And then, uh, then he Wooten has to convince Jimmy, hey, we we can get all these picks because Jimmy was all about the pick, as you said, you know, because he's trying to rebuild this thing. Because and you know he came fresh from the college game, so he knows all those college kids that are coming out if they can play for him. So he, that was a really smart thing. A lot of people don't talk a lot about that. That because Jimmy was fresh from the college game, he had a maybe a head start in comparison to his uh, competitors, I guess, in the NFL about some of these college players. So that's why he wanted all those picks because he knew who could play. It's a, it's a good book. I'm, I, again, like if you, if whoever's well, listening, I'm, I, I highly enjoyed it. I mean, there's a lot in there that I think if you're a Cowboys fan about how this franchise over the course of time decided to put together, you know, different eras of teams and using the draft to do that. Uh, there's a lot of little nuggets in there, man. I, I really enjoyed it. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. See, was, <laughs> what did you think about uh, – you guys are so formal. Uh, what did you think about Thank the you, game Thank last you, night? Uh, I picked the Giants to win a, uh, a low-scoring defensive game, and the Cowboys ended up doing it. And I also felt like a turnover would kind of decide the game and Diggs' interception kind of sealed the game, but uh, – you know, that was a game the Giants needed more than the Cowboys because the Giants were 2-0 and and they were trying to, you know, we talk about the Cowboys have a drought, a Super Bowl drought and things of that nature. 
Giants fans would love to have what the Cowboys have done in the last 10 years. And at least they get to the playoffs every other year. The, the Giants are not even close to that. And so that 2-0 start for them meant, hey, if we could beat the Cowboys, people will start believing in us. And now we're tied with the Eagles for first place in the division. And instead, you know, the Cowboys' defense is outstanding. Cooper Rush did exactly what he, what he needed to do. CeeDee Lamb overcame his drops and his issues, um, something that I think is going to be an issue down the line, I believe. And they won that ball game. And, you know, get sent to the Cowboys. They won it. They earned it. What do you make of this defense that Dallas has? I mean, is, is this going to – I mean, granted, we're three games in, but it feels like they've got the pieces where they might be one of the the best elite defenses in the NFL this year. Yeah, they have a really good defense, as you said. Um, I mean, Michael Parsons is unbelievable, as you guys know. Uh, he's opening the door for Demarcus Lawrence and Doris Armstrong to make plays. It, it's kind of cool to see how Dan Quinn – is implementing this pass rush. Because there were several times during that game they had only one one down defensive lineman. Everybody was standing up. You know, and I've never really seen that before with the Cowboys. Not even under Wade Phillips. You know, when he was he's a defensive coach. I don't know about Parcells, but I'm thinking about the defensive coaches the Cowboys have had and, and you know, that were like, let's put my scheme together and Dan Quinn is doing so many different things. Um he's got Parsons running out as a stand up defensive end and He's got Anthony Barr. He's rushing. And Jonathan Wilson came on a safety blitz and smashed Daniel Jones last night. You know, and so that pass rush is making it a little bit easier on that secondary. Um, this is a very good defense. This is probably one of the more faster, um, younger defenses they've had in a while. And it's, it's really fun to watch. No, what I, what I like about him is kind of what you alluded to is Dan Quinn moving pieces around to uh, to scheme offenses just the way offenses try to scheme defenses and attack their weak points. I mean, once he saw Evan Neal was struggling last night, it was like, oh, <laughs> we're going to take advantage of you, dog, whether it's with DeMarcus or whether it's with um, Michael Parsons or whether it's Donovan Wilson coming off the edge and you trying to make you decide who to take. we we just going to mess with you all night long. Oh, yeah, that, it is kind of cool. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, Dan in Seattle. When he was the defensive coordinator in Seattle, where he had all these weapons defensively with Richard Sherman and all those kids, and and they just they just took over the league, you know. And then the offense was able to get their act together, and somehow they got to two Super Bowls. But uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen with the Cowboys, but it's good to see that Dan Quinn is kind of getting back to what he used to be, which was a very good defensive coordinator. Obviously, when he's in Atlanta as a head coach, as a head coach, they had some struggles on the defensive side, but now he's seem to find the groove here. And it's interesting now when you think about it, why he wanted why he came back for a second year. Because I'm sure he felt like if I can get these guys going at an elite level, I can pick any job I want next year. You know, and we've already seen there's some jobs that we know are gonna open next year. And he, he might have any job. I mean, he could have had any job he wanted to this past off season, but he might, he might get a real good job, a better job than some of these guys are already open. So, um, yeah, and I think it's because he felt like this, this defense can really go to another level. All right. Calvin Watkins, man, we appreciate the time. Congrats on the book, on the clock, behind the scenes with the Dallas Cowboys at the NFL draft. I wasn't kidding. I mean, I, I legit enjoyed it. We appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you guys. You guys are the best. Thank you. All Have right. a great day. <laughs> you too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you later, Calvin. Ciao. <laughs> see you, man. 
Oh, that's awesome. I did, though. I really enjoyed the book. I told you about that before we ever going to have him on. Right. I mean, that's one reason we put him on. It's because yeah. you, uh, you had such a good time reading it. He's one of my best friends, probably my best friend. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want Clarence getting all upset, but you know how it is. Yeah, that's okay. That's the way it goes. It's okay to have a variety of different <laughs> friends. Yeah, so check that out. And, and if you guys are into reading like I am, and, and I mean, I, I, that was a book that I read. I read that really quickly just because each each little story is a chapter and it goes, again, all the way from the very beginning of the Roger Staubach, Ed Tutal Jones, Mel Rinfo, to the final chapter about Micah Parsons and all that. I mean, it covers everything in between in the history of how the Cowboys have kind of approached the draft in a variety of different eras. It's a really, really good read. It's such a good read because I've done a similar book, uh, which was Players and the Greatest Game They Ever Played for the Cowboys. But it launched me into, a, into another book idea. That I'll tell you about, Matt, and see what you think about it. Okay. Oh, it's for private conversation. Yeah. Oh, I like this. <laughs> nice. So, oh, there's that, guys. Be looking forward to that in another year or two from Jacques. Whenever it hits shelves, the idea that we don't even know. <laughs> All right. Enjoy. We will have another podcast coming your way on Friday. Get you ready to go as we look ahead to the Cowboys and the, the Washington Commanders on Sunday at noon. Appreciate everybody for being a part of it. Thanks for listening to the Jam Session podcast. Make sure to find us on Instagram at Jam Session Cast. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter at McMatt Radio and at JJT underscore journalist. Our podcast is sponsored by Greening Law, a personal injury law firm in Dallas, Texas. Greening Law fights the legal battle so you'll have time for healing and renewal. Give them a call at 972-934-8900. Greening Law, Office, Dallas, Texas. As always, thanks to Purple Elephant Music for the music you hear at the end and the beginning of each episode. He, of course, is the radio, TV, and now podcast star, the sexy Jean-Jacques Taylor. And me, I'm just a guy, Matt McLaren. We'll catch you next time right here on the Jam Session Podcast, available everywhere you listen to podcasts.